You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Our sermon text today is Genesis chapter 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Bir Lahairoi. It lies between Kadesh and Barad. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. I am not much of a do-it-yourselfer. Here's a few of the projects that I've come up with. No, that's from the internet. But yeah, uh, if you know my wife, my wife is really good at... uh, DIY stuff. She can watch a YouTube video or Pinterest and then make things. And there's lots of cool stuff around our house. I am not one that's patient enough for that kind of stuff. And it's helpful to have a dad who has a, who's a plumber and knows people so that things can get fixed right and not fixed the way I do it. So I found a few uh, DIY stories I thought were might be funny and uh, kind of lays into or sets us up for uh, the situation we have in, in Genesis chapter 16. So here's one. A part of my son's plastic Uh, potty had somehow gotten stuck in the toilet trap. I couldn't snake it out, nor could the plumber who left saying, buy a new toilet. So I had the brilliant idea that maybe I could burn it out. So I poured charcoal lighter fluid down the trap and lit it up, standing back, and I basked in the glory of the geyser of flames and my phenomenal ingenuity, until, bang, the commode snapped, cracked from the heat, and so I bought a new toilet. Another one, um, after giving my, our living room a fresh coat of paint, I decided to try my hand at refinishing the hardwood floors. 
So I rented a floor sander, an 80-pound beast of a machine with a large rotating drum that sands the floor while you walk behind. I loaded a coarse grit sandpaper, just as recommended, and plugged in the machine. After standing, or sanding for a few feet, the machine stopped, and I noticed that the heavy plug had partially slipped out of the outlet. So I walked over and wiggled it back into the outlet, only to discover that the sander switch was still on. The thing started up, shot across the room like a rabbit at a dog race, and me chasing it. It crashed through the wall and left a hole about the size of a floor sander. Even worse, my wife and daughter had been watching. They quietly left the room. I also left the room to get my drywall tools. So this, this idea of having a great plan, but then wanting to do it yourself, and we see that same thing happening here in Genesis chapter 16. Uh, we've been walking through the book of Genesis. Genesis means beginnings, and it sets the framework for everything that has been happening, and it sets the framework for the whole world, who God is, what he's like, what he's created human beings to be, and how it's gone wrong. And uh, we've gone through the first 11 chapters, and it's this big cosmic Google Earth view with floods and falls and nations. And then in Genesis chapter 12, all the people are scattered all around the earth, and God picks this one 75-year-old man and his wife who have no kids to be the, the carriers of the promise to redeem all nations. So what God has divided and scattered in judgment now is going to be blessed through this one man. And we've got this street view. We go from Google Earth view to street view in Genesis chapter 12 with a promise that God just makes to a guy that is not a worshiper of him by what we can tell, but just appears to him and goes, you're my guy. I'm going to bring my promise of redemption and blessing to all nations through you. I'm going to give you children and land, and you're going to be a blessing. And so uh, Abram and his wife moved to a new land. They moved to the land of Canaan and began to walk with this God that they've just met, walking by faith in him. There's some ups and downs along the way. Um, he has great moments of great faith, Abram and Sarah do, and then sometimes they don't. Um, and at the end of chapter 12, he, uh, he uh, Abimelech, uh, the king of Egypt takes his wife because Abram's kind of a coward and takes his wife and, and uh, somehow God fixes that situation and brings him out and then he has a moment of great faith where all of a sudden he rescues his cousin Lot from captivity and chases down these kings and so Abram is just up and down. He has great moments of faith and then he has a lot of moments where he's not very faithful. Um, and then in, in, we saw last week in Genesis chapter 15 that God makes a covenant, cuts a covenant with Abram. And maybe the most, one of the most important verses in the whole Old Testament is Genesis 15, 6, where it says, He believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abram didn't earn God's favor. God gave it to him, and he received it by faith. So God just continues with this messed up couple who sometimes get it right, sometimes get it wrong, and he is just resilient. He is relentless in the fact that he is going to keep his promise to them, and he cuts a covenant. They cut the animals in half, which was an ancient um, an ancient way for two kings to come to an agreement and they would walk through the animal parts together getting blood on their feet and it would be one of these agreements that if you don't pay me taxes or I don't give you protection then may we be like this animal if I break my side of the covenant and God makes a covenant with Abram but Abram doesn't have to go through only God goes through and God essentially says I swear on myself that I will do this I will keep the covenant. I will keep my side of the covenant, and I even will keep your side of the covenant, Abram. 
May God himself die if he doesn't bring these promises to pass. And Abram believes him, and it's credited to him as righteousness. And so this great mountaintop experience of faith, this big understanding that God's the one that's going to do it, it's not dependent on me. And then we flip the page to Genesis chapter 16. And uh, we see, I've got two things that I want you to see. First, in verses 1 through 6, we have an impatient couple that causes damage. So the title of this message is God's plan my way. After all of this that's been happening, this is the situation they're in. So verses 1 through 6 will be an impatient couple that causes damage. And then in verses 7 through 15, we're going to see that there is a seeing God who redeems the damaged. Okay? So an impatient couple causes damage. A seeing God redeems the damaged. So let's look at verses 1 through 6. Okay, if you've got your Bibles, you can open them up. I don't know what page number it's on, but uh, I think you'll probably be able to find it. Um, so here's, here's, how, here's where it starts. So remember, we're coming off of this huge moment, this huge event in chapter 15. And there might have been some time that passed in there, probably was. But here's now the situation. This couple is old. The promises of God have not come to fruition like they'd hoped. And uh, just think about this for a moment. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. That's just a really sad sentence. It hasn't come to pass yet. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. So we've got three characters in this story. We've got Abram, the man of faith, man who's been up and down, but he's, he's had this encounter with God. He's had this covenant made with him. He's the man of faith, 85 years old, and on a bit of a hot streak so far in terms of obedience. He's, he's been getting it right more often than he's been getting it wrong. And then we have Sarai, his wife, 10 years younger than him, still very old, well past the, the time of, of bearing children. Um, if you think back, you know, I can imagine that their marriage maybe hasn't fully recovered from the Abimelech experience. I can't imagine that when you let your wife be taken by someone else and then coming back, that maybe things are still needing to be worked out. And Sarah is definitely, I think, hurting in this passage. God has made a promise to her husband, and she's not sure if she's included in that. She's not sure if she's the one that's going to bear this child. To this point, it's been clear that it's going to come from Abram, but they, they don't know yet exactly. And I'm wondering if her view of God is a little bit confused. That maybe God is going to do something with my husband and I'm not going to be a part of it. And maybe I'm actually standing in the way. Maybe I'm the problem that stands between this. So while it's easy to criticize Sarai in this passage, you could also feel the pain. This is a woman who's not been able to have a child. She feels like she's failed her husband, like she's standing between this. And so while this is a bad idea that she's going to come up with, you can at least relate to the fact this is a woman who's impatient, frustrated, hurting, and at least seems like maybe she has a little bit of a warped view of God, that somehow God would want to break this one flesh union that he's talked about at the beginning, that maybe, maybe, he's, maybe, maybe God would want to break that and bring another woman in. So, so I have a lot of compassion for Sarai here because they've been waiting a long time and it feels like she's the problem. And then there's Hagar. Hagar is a servant from Egypt. She maybe was part of the uh, 
restitution that was made by Abimelech when he was confronted by God and said, hey, you need to give Sarai back to Abram. And then he gives him all this stuff, and Hagar's probably part of that. So Hagar has been sort of a commodity in all of this. And now she is being held forth as a uterus for rent. So she's a pawn kind of in this scheme. Um, this, uh, in, in a sense, you know, we've got this promise that it's going to be your heir, because back in chapter 15, Abram said, well, maybe, maybe uh, this adopted son can be the heir. And God goes, no, it's going to be from your own body, but it's not clear that it's going to be from Sarai. And so they're trying to find a loophole in God's word. Sarah's trying to find a way to make the promise happen in her own strength. Now, this idea of taking someone to be a surrogate for you is not uncommon. There's lots of ancient texts that speak about this, that if a wife is unable to bear children, then there can be a surrogate, so to speak, that can come in and you can give a servant girl and, and then that child will still legally be the married couple's but the slave will be the one that actually carries the child. So we actually have versions of that now, surrogacy. And so this is not an uncommon practice that maybe this would be a way to try to make things happen. Um, And so um, this is a normal custom. They're not doing anything that's illegal. They're not doing anything that's uncommon. This would be a natural remedy to the situation of not having a child. And so It seems like a a foolproof plan, but it's got to come from a a sense of brokenness. I can't imagine Sarai is feeling great about this, that she's excited about this. can't imagine that Hagar is feeling great about this, but this is normal. This is just sort of how life is. This is how culture is, and this is one way to make the promise happen, to make God's plan happen. We can make it happen ourselves. Now, I think the way that Moses is writing this, it has some resonance and some echoes of Genesis chapter 3. You've got a husband and a wife, right, who've got this commission from God. They're going to be fruitful and they're going to multiply, and yet there's this temptation to do it their way. And I don't think this is by accident that Abram Abram and Sarai are almost like new Adam and Eve. They're the ones who the promise, who the fulfillment, who the blessing of all nations is going to come through, and yet we see that that sin nature is still in them. Let me just point out a couple. In Genesis 3, 6, We see that Eve takes the lead, and she takes the fruit and gives it to her husband. And if you see in verse 3, she took her servant Hagar and gave him, gave her to her, to Abram as a husband. So this sense of going against God's plan, doing God's plan your way. It feels a little bit like that Eve. This fall is happening. This marriage is broken, just like that first marriage. And then you have God judging Adam in Genesis 3.17 because you have listened to the voice of your wife and in verse 2 of Genesis 16.2 Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So there is this echo of the fall kind of happening here that there's really nothing new under the sun. We're all tempted to sin in some of the same ways and so they're tempted because of a warped view of God and his promises and his plans to bless and this sense of I've got to try to make it happen myself. And so we see a little bit of the echo of Genesis chapter 3. I think it important, well, and then in Genesis chapter 4, verse 19, we have Lamech who takes two wives. And now here we have the first, the the next incident really since that time, this evil Lamech who takes two wives and is a man of violence in Genesis chapter 4. Well, now the man of God, the man of faith has taken on two wives. He's no better. Abram is no better than wicked Lamech. And polygamy 
it just never works out in the Bible. It just never works out to take on multiple wives. So just log that away for everybody's edification. Multiple wives just doesn't work out. Might sound like a great idea, never works out. All right? One important point I think we need to notice here is that just because a particular arrangement or action or situation is legal and even culturally accepted or even consented to doesn't mean it's good. That doesn't mean that we necessarily should legislate everything bad, but it does mean that just because it's culturally approved, just because it's consented to, just because it's um, legal, does not mean it's a great idea. We're going to find out that this is not a great idea. It's legal, it's culturally accepted, and it seems like all parties, it's questions about Hagar, but it seems like everybody's at least consenting to this, and this is still going to end up being a disaster. So just a reminder there that God's plan, God's purposes are not always lined up with the culture, right? It's not always, that's not always a great barometer for what's good and true and beautiful and right. Look at verse four. And he went into Hagar and she conceived. And when he saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. So good news, the plan worked. Bad news, the plan worked. And now Sarah knows she's the problem, that she's the hindrance, right? And Hagar now begins to feel a sense of superiority. So while Hagar is sort of the commodity in this thing, she's not sinless because she now starts to look down on Sarah. She looks on her with contempt. That word for contempt is the same word in Genesis 3.12 when Jesus, or not Jesus, when God promised Abram those who dishonor you, I will curse. And so she's dishonoring Abram's wife. And so she is not reacting as she should. She's beginning to feel this sense of superiority that maybe she's the better wife, that maybe she can step into this. And so there's sin really on all sides. This is really a love triangle that is a mess. And while there is certain responsibilities and sins, everybody's being sinned against and everybody's committing sin in this. There's no heroes in this story. Proverbs 30, verses 21 through 23 says this, and I think maybe thinking back on this event, the writer of Proverbs says this, under three things the earth trembles, under four it cannot bear up, a slave when he becomes king, a fool when he is filled with food, an unloved woman when she gets a husband, and a maidservant when she displaces her mistress. This sense of like, this is a traumatic event, and the relationships are all broken, they're all messed up. Verse 5, Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I can't believe you did this, Abram. And Abram's probably thinking, this was not my idea. This was your idea. But you see the relational tension, right? Now she wants to shift blame on him. And rightfully so, this, he should have said no, right? But he consented to this. I gave you my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt she decided that she was going to be more than just a uterus for rent. She thought that maybe she had some position in this family, and now there's conflict. Now there's conflict. May the Lord judge between you and me. So she's evoking God's judgment on Abram. I can't believe you did this to me. And Abram said to Sarah, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. And Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. So Abram just totally steps out of the thing entirely. Like, this is between you two, right? So he fails to step up, take responsibility, and he leaves both wives out to, out to dry. 
right? I mean, he really has abandoned both wives at this point. And just sort of like, yeah, you figure this out. Let, it's amazing how quickly they're backpedaling on their brilliant plan. Their brilliant plan to make God's will happen is just totally blown up and they're backpedaling fast. Sarai blames Abram. Abram relents. He fails to take responsibility and leadership. He fails both of them in one act. And then Hagar runs. It just gets too hard, so she runs. She flees. Which, I think if you were the original audience reading this, Moses is writing this story, and your heroes in the faith just are not looking great, right? The Bible doesn't whitewash people. It also doesn't cancel people, right? It, it takes the good and the bad. Like, I would think that if you're writing this and you want Abram to be this hero that you look up to and he's your model, this might be a story you might want to take a different direction. This might be one that you'd like to do a little revisionist history on to maybe make it seem not so bad. Moses doesn't do that. The Bible just deals very honestly that there's no heroes. There's no heroes here, and yet this is who God chooses to work with. And I think the original audience would go, wait a minute, wait a minute. So as we're coming out of Egypt, where we were under the oppression, we are descendants of people who oppressed an Egyptian. Like, we're not better than those people, right? On a smaller scale for sure, but, but the mistreatment of someone else, yeah, that's, that's part of our sin struggle. That's part of our family too. The originally, original audience would be reading this and thinking, before we were slaves running from oppression in Egypt, there was an Egyptian that was running through the desert from our father and our mother's mistreatment. That sin is the same. Our sin is the same. We don't come from better stock than someone else. So Hagar runs. She runs. So now it's the second scene in the story here is chapters, verses 7 through 15. A seeing God redeems the damage. This is awesome. Whenever you come to a passage, probably the first question you should ask is, what does this tell me about the God behind this passage? And that's really what we want to get through all this. Abraham, kind of a mess. Sarai, kind of a mess. Hagar, a mess. Look at the God who is going to engage this situation. And look at the disposition and the way that God comes into this. So keep your eyes on God and how he interacts in this passage. Look at verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. The idea of found her means that God was looking for her, searching for her, found her, sought her out. She's not part of the promise. She's just a lowly slave who's been mistreated and then rejected and is fleeing. The way of sure, like if you kind of look at the distance from where Abram probably is at the time when she runs away and where she is at, she's just to the border of Egypt. She's right there. She's almost back home. Things are not working out. She's going to run back home through the desert as a pregnant woman. The miles, it looks like it's close to 50 miles. So I have a pregnant wife. I'm not sure she's making it 50 miles through the desert. Maybe. She's resilient. She's, she's tough Nebraska stock, so she probably would make it quite a ways. So she's almost home. She's at the well. She's made it through the desert, and the angel of the Lord shows up. And this might, this seems to be maybe even God himself, not just a, it seems to be God himself, because she talks about seeing God and still living. So somehow God is manifesting to this woman in some way. Um, so it's, it's beyond just an angelic being. This seems to be God's own presence himself. God comes. 
Some speculate that maybe it's even a picture, an appearance of Jesus meeting a woman at the well in the Old Testament, perhaps. Verse 8, he said to, then he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. Now, this is the first time that Hagar's name is used. Abram and Sarai only refer to her as servant, slave. And when God shows up, he uses her name, right? She, to this point, has had no dignity to really even have a name at this point. And it's God who shows up to the broken, to the running, to the forgotten, to the rejected, to the hurting, to the damaged, and says, Hagar, where are you going? And where have you, where have you come from? She says, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. I'm running from the mistreatment of your people. Your people have been mistreating me and I am fleeing them. This is the only time in ancient history, according to ancient literature, where a God appears to a woman and has this kind of interaction. This tells us something about our God. This is not the woman of promise. This is the woman who's been damaged by God's people and is fleeing and is just trying to go home. And God chases her down and comes personally, calls her by name, and begins to tend to her soul, begins to meet her in the point of pain. And here's what he says, verse nine, the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. The angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son and you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over and against all his kingdom, kinsmen. So I know the people of God have hurt you, Hagar, but you will not find relief in running away. My promise is through them. Going back to your old life, going back to your old people, going back to your old gods is not going to fix this. Yes, my people have mistreated you. Yes, this is not a situation that you wanted yourself to be in but going back running away is not going to be the answer go back to them not because of them but because of me I have a plan for you with them and I will protect you now I think we have to be careful here I don't think that we should use this passage to justify telling someone who's being abused to go back to their abuser there are laws there are reasons and this was God himself showing up, giving a special providence, a special protection, a special promise. So if that's you, if you're in some sort of abusive relationship, don't misunderstand this passage to mean that you need to go and endure that. Don't misunderstand that. There are ways and processes by which we can deal with those things. And if that's you, we'd love for you to step out and be helpful. I don't think that's what God is saying here. But I do think that he's saying that you can't run away from the people of God and expect things to be better. There's no promise for Egypt. There's promise with my people. Go back to them and I'm going to protect you. I have a plan in this. And he says, you will be fruitful and you will multiply. Because you're bearing Abram a son, that Genesis 12:3 is gonna kind of apply to you. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So you are bearing Abram a son, and I am so closely tied to Abram that I'm going to bless you too. You're, there's going to be a special blessing on your son too. But not the main promise. 
In fact, his promise is weird. Look at, look at Ishmael's, the, the prediction about Ishmael. Ishmael will be kind of like the photo negative of Isaac. Isaac is going to be a blessing to all nations. Ishmael is going to be a pain to all nations. So these two sons are going to be kind of mirror images of each other and going to be in conflict. Ishmael is going to be a pain to all nations. Isaac's supposed to be a blessing to all nations. Isaac is going to receive the land. Ishmael is going to be a wanderer. So this is not an extension of the promise that God made earlier in chapter 12 and then reaffirmed in chapter 15. But this is an additional kind of promise that materially, physically, this is going to be a fruitful people, but there's going to be a conflict that endures for centuries between Ishmael and Isaac. Some have said that you can actually trace all trace the Arab peoples back to Ishmael. And so this whole Islamic versus Israel conflict finds its root here. That may be true. Muhammad actually traces his lineage through Ishmael. So that wild donkey that's sort of at war with everybody kind of fits. I don't know. We don't want to press that too far, but that's possible, potentially, that the conflict that we see every day in the news finds its source here, finds its beginning here to some extent. Conflict. Verse 13. So she called on the name of the Lord who spoke to her and says, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Be'er Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. Kadesh is going to have a lot of significance in the future. This is going to be a significant place where God and his people work things out relationally. This is going to be a place where the people get it really wrong. It's going to be a place that God brings people regularly. So now we see this meeting with this woman happening in a place that's going to be significant going forward. So again, this is the only time in ancient literature where a deity personally speaks with a woman, at least that I'm aware of. It's the only time that anyone, let alone a woman, gets to confer a name on God. You are a God of seeing. You are El Roy, is what it says in Hebrew. So this woman is given the dignity, this damaged, broken, forgotten, rejected woman has the privilege of interacting with God on this level and having the unique privilege, maybe in almost all of scripture, of actually getting to assign God a name. God always assigns his own name and communicates that to us. But this woman gets this, which tells us so much about the heart of God for the hurting, for the damaged, for the broken, for the rejected. And I think it tells us so much about God caring about every human life, right? Even this Ishmael, who is the result of sin. It's going to be cared for. No, I'm going to care for this boy, and I have, I'm, going to, I'm going to bless him, and I'm going to bless you. And her interpretation of this whole event is that you're a God who sees, who sees in the desert a broken woman, rejected, alone, just trying to get home, trying to survive, carrying a baby that nobody wants. And God goes, no, no I'm with you. I have a plan for you. I care for you. I see you. Ishmael's name means the Lord hears. So here we have this picture of God who sees and hears. Even in the midst of tremendous sin and brokenness and rejection and goes, give me that. Give me the damaged. I know what to do with this. Verse 15, Hagar, we get sort of this, um, this closing. These last two verses are just very matter of fact, just like, man, here's the facts. Here's how it worked out. Hagar bore Abram a son, just like it was promised. And Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Now that's significant. That means Hagar did go back 
and said, hey, I had an encounter with the living God, your God. And here's what he said to me. And here's the promise he gave to me. And Abram went, okay. Abram received her back and took responsibility for this situation. And he agreed. He agreed to the name that was given by God. So Abram, to some extent, does end up in a little bit more of an honorable situation here where she's been brought back. It's clear that God has something going on here that he's going to use. Verse 16, Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. So this is 11 years into this thing. Sarai feels broken. Abram's just up and down. Hagar, and now we've got kind of this mess. And if you flip over to chapter 17, Justin's going to take you through chapter 17 next week. It just fast forwards 15 more years, 13 more years, actually, 13 more years where it's just totally silent. As far as they know, Ishmael is the one of promise. In fact, that's what's going to happen in chapter 17 is that God's going to reaffirm the promise and goes, hey, part of the sign of that promise is circumcision. And Abram goes, no, just transfer the promise to Ishmael. Like, and so God is just slow in bringing this thing to bear. 13, 11 years, and then 13 more years till we begin to see this promise take shape. So just a couple of application points here. So our first point was impatient people or impatient couple cause damage. And then we see God, a seeing God redeems the damaged. So our two application points, impatient people cause damage and God sees and redeems the damaged. I, I just think that's what we get out of this text. We have a tendency in ourselves to be like Abram and Sarai, to think more of will it work than is it right? Will it get the job done the way I want it to get done versus is this God's plan for us? You notice Adam or Abram has had this really intimate relationship with God and at no time is God consulted. There's no time where they sit down and hey, let's pray about this. Let's seek the Lord's will in this. Does this even make sense to bring another wife into this thing? Like based on what we know of God, it doesn't make any sense that this would be the way that he would want this to be done. I just don't know in the scriptures if there's ever a time when the people of God pray that they then make a terrible decision. There might be some. I can't think of any. And there's certainly we could maybe come up with examples, but there's a principle there that you almost always make a bad decision if you don't pray, right? Which is why I think a church's prayer meeting is such a good indication of what we really trust in. Do we think we can do things in our own strength? Do we think that we can make God's work happen our way. As the great Dr. Ian Malcolm in Jurassic Park said, your scientists were so preoccupied with whether they could bring dinosaurs back to life that they didn't even stop to think if they should, right? You remember that? And that's true with God's people. We're so quick to look for loopholes and technicalities in God's word so that we can do it our way, do it the way we want to do it. Man's creativity without seeking God. Abram and Sarah never even think to ask God about this. They just go, will it work? Yes, let's do it. Because we're tired of waiting. We don't want to wait. Here's, I think, an important lesson for us. The most devastating consequences come not when the bad, evil people out there get it wrong, but when the people of God get impatient with God. You see that down through scripture over and over again. 
that it's not those out there that do the most damage to the world. It's the people of God who claim to know God and then don't do God's work God's way, right? That's probably been true in your life. Some of the greatest wounds have probably come from church people, right? We got to keep that in mind, that we bear a really big responsibility and we possess a lot of power as the people of God. And so when we let impatience and disobedience and pragmatism, as long as it works, the end justifies the means, that's deadly in the world. See that down through scripture, we're going to see that over and over again, that when the people of God want to do God's will their way, it always hurts people. It always brings damage to the people of God and to the people that God wants them to bless. Individually, this is a real temptation for us. How many young single women do I know that decide that they're so desiring to be married that they'll move in with someone, hoping that maybe he'll marry them one day? And they get themselves into even more pain. Or someone who is not a Christian, and so I'll date them in the hopes that they'll become a Christian, right? And then you end up with more pain and more difficulty when it doesn't work out parents, how anxious that we can be to see our kids respond to faith in Jesus Christ. And so we can be tempted to just get them to pray a prayer. Quickly, let's get them baptized. And then, oh, and we really did it more for us than really wanting to see the genuine work of God in them. To really see them encounter Jesus and come to faith in him, sometimes that takes time. But there's a real temptation in us to get impatient. And so we're going to try to make it happen. We're going to try to force it a little bit. And we create Pharisees and false conversions and we end up with all kinds of brokenness because we can get in such a hurry. Corporately, this can happen in a church. Church hopping is rampant. They didn't call me when they said they would and so I'm off. I'm going to move to another church. Just a lack of patience. And I, I would say, especially in these last couple of years with COVID and all this stuff and how much we've been separated from each other, it's just a real impatience. Now, sometimes people do real damage. We see that in the passage, right? But sometimes there's also a a lack of patience with God's people. And I'll just go somewhere where it's better and then we find out it's not better. Church pragmatism can be rampant too. Is like we get frustrated that just the regular teaching of God's word is gonna do God's work. So we've gotta try to make it flashy or we gotta try to tone it down or we've gotta water it down or we've gotta do something. We've gotta adjust the message to make it more receptive because it's just not working. I gotta be patient. Jesus said that he builds his church on the confession of him being the Christ. So we continue to call people to confess him as the Christ and he will build the church. Not based on our efforts and strength or ingenuity. If we do that, we'll get Ishmael. That's the point of Galatians chapter four that Sonia read earlier, is that if you do God's work in the flesh, you get Ishmael, you get what the flesh can produce. But if you wait for the promise, you trust my word, you trust in what I'm doing, you get Isaac, you get the supernatural work of God. Hudson Taylor, missionary to, the China, to, uh, to China back in the 1800s, said this, God's work done God's way will never lack God's supply. And again, that's why our prayer meetings are so important. Socially and culturally, we can get impatient. And if we don't win this election, this is the most important election in our lifetime, right? Maybe, maybe not. We do do these all the time. How much energy can we put in there? And maybe God's working a bigger plan than we think. So we don't need to whitewash people, make them appear more Christian than they are. Neither do we need to demonize people simply because they have a different view or party than us, right? Be patient, be patient, be honest. 
God's work done God's way will bring his results. But if we try to do God's will in our way, according to our cleverness, we're going to get Ishmael. We're going to get what the flesh can do and will lack the real power of God. A DIY life, even a DIY Christian life, is going to be a disaster. And it's going to hurt people. We have to walk with God in the ways that Jesus prescribes, which is why the Sermon on the Mount is so weird. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Well, the poor in spirit don't win anything. Blessed are the weak. Blessed are the mourning. No, be strong. No, not if we want the supernatural work of God. We could certainly do the Christian life on the whole opposite spectrum, but we see exactly what that. It creates damage and problems and brokenness. And fortunately, God sees and redeems the damaged. So if that's you, because of your own decisions, or maybe because of the decisions of others, you have damage. You have brokenness, you have sin, you have guilt. You've been running from God. You just want to go back home. Maybe you're like Hagar in the wilderness and God shows up and goes, where are you going? And why are you going that way? He sees her. He cares for her. And he cares for what the mistakes have created. He cares for this child, this Ishmael. Unnamed Hagar, unborn Ishmael, loved by God. God says, I do not discard you, no matter what you've done, no matter what has been done to you. Do not run. Come back. I see you. I will redeem you. Will you trust me? Call me by my name because I call you by your name. And so the question really is, is like, do you know this God who sees and hears? I hinted at it a little bit earlier, but in John chapter 4, we have a very similar thing where Jesus goes out in the middle of the wilderness of Samaria and waits at a well for a woman to come and has an interaction that is very similar to this Hagar thing where he comes to this woman and engages her. She's been used and abused by men. She's been discarded. She's got sin in her life. She's got brokenness. She's coming to the well in the middle of the day because she doesn't want to be around anyone. And Jesus so tenderly comes to her. And he confronts things that are broken in her. It's not like Jesus is just a warm hug all the time. He does surgery on the heart. But then ultimately he says, you're thirsty for water and I'm the water you need. So the God who showed up to Hagar and had this intimate interaction with her caring for her, of redeeming her, of putting her back together and giving her promises. We see the same God show up in Jesus Christ and do the thing over and over and over. This is who God is. He shows up to the damaged, the broken, the rejected, the worthless, and he calls them to himself. He came on earth, bore the weight of our sin on the cross, rose again, and is freely offering to all of you to be the God who sees you, hears you, and redeems you. Let's pray. God, thank you for this passage, and it's just one of many stories that we still have to get through in the book of Genesis. We thank you for what it tells us about um, what it tells us about other humans, that there are no perfect humans other than Christ himself, that even this hero of the faith really screwed things up, and while that's disconcerting, it's also encouraging to know that screwed up people like me you might also have a plan for us too. God, thank you for just the tender way that you drew near to Hagar and how that's just a picture of just who you are again and again and again. And some of, some of us can tell those same stories. Thank you that through Jesus, you have drawn near. You actually put on flesh and came and drew near 
to real people. And you draw near to us through your word and through your church. Help us not to be a people that runs from you, runs from your people. Help us to be patient and not try to do your work in our way and help us ultimately to know the God who sees and hears and to trust him, to trust that he can redeem what's damaged. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.